here for episode 49 of Blockchain Insider. Coming to you live from Money 2020 this week, we have the news show. We have Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple, and we have Brad from Dash. We are here. Um, for any of you that listen to Blockchain Insider, this is the blockchain portion of the show, and we're kicking off with cargo on a blockchain, not cargo sh uh, shorts. Um, this comes from Coindesk. Uh, apparently, the world's largest shipping firm now tracks cargo on a blockchain. And Sarah, you read up on this one a little bit. What's going on here? Yeah, so we have uh, shipping giant Maersk has revealed the completion of its first live blockchain trial. Uh, it's aiming to simplify the way in which it sends trillions of dollars worth of products around the world. Whoa. Trillions wow. of dollars, yo. Yeah. yeah, but like it's a pilot that's not doing the trillions of dollars. This pilot is like one transaction. I believe so, yes. Um, so they used Hyperledger Fabric, which is open source, and it involves a partnership between Maersk and Fabric, and Maersk and IBM, sorry. There's a JV there, I think, isn't there? Yeah, yeah. So they have, um, I think there's a minimum requirement of four nodes, and they're currently being shared amongst Maersk and um, IBM. Uh, but the point of blockchain is really to change these business models. So for me, I find it a bit um, truncated at the moment. So the idea would be to get everyone involved in that value chain, in that supply chain, to be running nodes, to be owning their, their process, to be mutualizing the risk between them. So if I'm going to use a new technology to do the same old shit the same old way I used to do it a bit faster, is that innovation or is that doing the same old shit I used to do a bit faster? That sounds like digitization. Yeah, exactly. It's literally like digitizing an old analog process rather My than actually word. rethinking it. Well, and, uh, yeah, like, so for 11FS, digitization is a bit of a dirty word and digitalization is its evil twin, right? Like you can't take something that used to be analog and try and put some digital on it. It's like, I was led to believe everything could be fixed with blockchain. Is that not true? I'm here to inform you, David, that sadly, no. And Damn it. But the tooth fairy is still real. All of those investments I've made have been bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> investments or speculations? Yeah, there we go. Speculations in 11 coin be rife, yo. You know what I like about this story, though? If there's if Personally, if there's one industry that I think is on the cutting edge when it comes to innovation, it is the shipping industry. Do you realize the percentage of ships there was basically no one on them? I mean, literally. Really? Right? Didn't know that. Ex-Navy guy, right? Uh, so <laughs> I have 10 years. So I spent a ton of time on oceans. The number of shipping containers, ships, that are out there that are basically uh, almost peopleless, it's, it's, and that's going to be, that is, will be the norm shortly. So the fact that Maersk is taking a look at blockchain and what they can do there, I'm not shocked at all. Well, I think uh, part of the reason for going into this was a disappointing financial year because some of the uh, ships were also cargoless too. Yeah. Wow, that's a uh, very expensive, empty thing yes, moving yeah, around yeah. there, right? Yeah, very. Uh, I don't know. I'm always a bit skeptical of these types of things, and I think we, we see these announcements happening on a, on a weekly, if not daily basis. I think what's interesting, I mean, clearly they're one of the largest companies in, in the shipping industry. And um, So one of the things in the article was, uh, so it, it spoke about the fact that 30 people, so for every single uh, container that's being shipped, it apparently involves 30 people uh, and God knows how many organizations, more than 200 separate interactions. So clearly, I think if there's something that can help them to resolve that and reduce cost, it should be the blockchain. Oh, there's that word, the blockchain again. Mm -hmm. Our blockchain and the blockchain are a different the thing. Facebook. The Facebook. The, yeah, it's like using wheel technology to solve something. It just sounds <laughs> weird. Um, all right, uh, next story. From a shipping company offering trade finance to a crypto exchange investment fund. Uh, so Binance. Hands up if you've heard of Binance. 
Okay, so Binance yeah. being one of the... Yeah, Anna Herrera has definitely heard of Binance. Um, <laughs> one of the largest crypto-to-crypto -crypto exchanges in the world. The um, largest. Though. The largest. Um, with, uh, so they have announced uh, a $1 billion investment fund. Sarah, walk us through this one as well. Yes, yeah, so a uh, billion dollars to them is not really very much, I believe, um, given that they traded... or Five billion of crypto was traded over the last 24 hours. <laughs> Binance. Um, wow. That's yeah, so, so <laughs> Certainly, yeah. So the, the Community Influence Fund... Which is, an a, which is a really scary-sounding name. We're going to influence the community with a lot of money. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Hmm. So they've set up this $1 billion fund to uh, both fund startups and also fund funds. So they're looking at um, asset managers by side who have got experience with managing $100 million AUM. Uh, they like small funds managed by experienced investors. Um, like if you've yeah. got some weird funny money, make more money by creating a fund of funny money. Yeah, like, and actually Laura mentioned... <laughs> sorry, Laura, to bring you, bring you into this. Producer um, Laura, hey. Producer yeah. Laura, hi. <laughs> uh, Laura said before it's potentially that they've got so much money they don't know what to do with it. Well, so they are making an insane amount of money, Jeff. Did you see this stat from a little while ago? Ridiculous. I mean, the fact that they're trading $5 billion of crypto within 24 hours is nuts. It's absolutely mental. And in Q1, they announced they've made... like So their, their revenue, not just the trade on the platform, but their revenue was... $300 million at a 97% profit margin. That's my favorite stat. Wow. I mean, granted, they are basically arbitraging. Like, I mean, Jesus, compliance. what are we doing here? <laughs> no, well, you, you and I came out of consulting, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's, a, that's like a hell of a margin. margin. I know. I know. We, have great, we had great margins in our old job. But yeah, we're not. doing something wrong. Sure, surely, right. though, if they really want to sort of influence the community, they need to start going into politics, right? Like, with $7 billion, you can get elected, surely. Well, so there's a, there's a lobbying organization called Coin Center that a certain exchange that may be here may have put up a lot of money to invest in. <laughs> <laughs> Moving <laughs> on! Yeah. Um, but it, but it, to me, this is like just a sign the scale of these numbers here. So um, we've seen that... Um, did anybody see that EOS went live? Um, EOS is one of these Ethereum competitors, another sort of cryptocurrency with a network. They've raised $4 billion. Um, and that's, that's in an ICO, effectively. Yeah, year-long ICO, $4 billion. That's massive. So is big finance coming to this space, or is this still the Wild West? Uh, I think it is. I mean, we're certainly seeing in the work we do at Clearmatics that we get, we're getting a lot more institutional interest in going live, not just proof of concepts um, and obviously at the end of last year the CME and CBOE um, launched the Bitcoin futures so that allowed uh, investors speculators whatever you want to call them to kind of speculate on the downside as opposed to just speculators going to speculate I'm, I'm curious for the audience how many have an email in LinkedIn telling them about an ICO that's coming out and you have a chance to invest? How many are tired of emails that are telling you, haven't? yeah, I swear yeah. to God, well, you can we see should why, rename spam ICO. You can see why Google and Facebook banned the advertising for some of this stuff because oh, there yeah. was a gold rush and people kind of rushed in. But at the same time, you've got like the more mature assets, your Bitcoins, your Ethereums and, and others that now your large institutional investors are taking seriously. So you've got Goldman have a prop trading desk, JPM do, Barclays do, and now they're looking at like, okay, we've got the prop trading desk. How do we bring institutional liquidity into this? You may never buy a Bitcoin, but your pension fund may hold some underlying asset that is pegged to Bitcoin. So this is a really interesting concept of as these digital assets mature, the Adam Smith thing is true. Like, if there's money to be made there, the big markets are going to make money and they're going to figure out how to make them comply. I think, I think what's interesting, though, is despite all the noise and, and regulators stepping in and looking into ICOs, if you look at 
the number of ICO offerings and the money that's being poured into ICOs, it's actually higher than last year. And it's, so and last it's year typically two- not retail investors that are buying in now. It's exactly. the single-family offices, the multi-family offices. Like, if you're in cap markets, you can't avoid this discussion at the moment because it's not just cryptocurrencies that are exciting people. If anything, it's real estate. It's uh, loan origination. It's private equity. It's all of these things that were really manual and really painful for, to do for big investment banks. Now, suddenly, they look at these crypto asset things and they go, all right, well, they've turned uh, like this funny money into a digital token, and that's nice. But what if we could turn real estate into a digital token? What if we could turn private equity into a digital token and increase the participation and increase the liquidity into that market? And now you see the custodians and like the infrastructure providers in capital markets really starting to take this market seriously. I think Binance is just one example. Right? I think Andreessen Horowitz is looking to set up a, a dedicated crypto fund. You've got, uh, I think, was it the partner from Sequoia who left Sequoia as well to set up a fund together with one of the co-founders of Coinbase. So there's loads and loads of people moving and, into and, this space. And uh, A16Z invested in a company called Harbor. Mm-hmm. Harbor, or a company, look them up, um, they, harbor.com. They are doing that sort of real estate and kind of non-traditional, non-listed market instruments. So your real estate, so your loan origination, your private equity, they're doing those as tokens. So it's going to be interesting to watch how that develops. But, but most, like, most ICOs are still, like, I don't think Adobe knew what they were doing when they created oh, no, the, no. the PDF creator. Because most ICOs are still, yeah. like, selling PDFs, right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, and there's so much dodgy stuff out there, and it doesn't surprise me, therefore, that regulators are coming in and killing the scams, and more needs to be done on that. And I think the industry hasn't done itself any favors coming from this anti-establishment background, where it's like, screw central banks, we don't need anything, and it's kind of got this, like, you know, uh, anti-establishment feel to it. But I do think there are very serious people in there trying to make it work. And for those people that are trying to make a, make sense of this innovation and deliver it, it's extremely frustrating that there's so much crap out there that grabs the headlines because there is simply so much and there are no clear rules. Yeah, and that's what I like about this one is that it's not just um, coin speculation. They are actually putting real money into trying to make the infrastructure better and more usable and more accessible by investing in these startups as well. And it's not just, um, it's not just Binance that have done it. There's the Ethereum Community Fund, uh, Ripple's Spring. Sorry if I've butchered that Ripple. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, the Ripple. EOS. Sorry, Ripple. Sorry, Ripple. Sorry, Ripple. Um, <laughs> For anybody that doesn't know, we had a bit of a tweet storm with the uh, Ripple community a little while ago. So. Ongoing. <laughs> um, all right, so um, that brings us to the end of our uh, blockchain uh, piece of the show. But if you liked what you heard, then uh, Blockchain Insider is available on iTunes now. Thank you very much, Jeff and Sarah. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Okay, so that was the news this week. Uh, Binance doing lots of interesting things and uh, it's a real sign of the times of where we are. Coming up next, uh, I interviewed Brad Garlinghouse, the CEO of Ripple. Brad, we're here. We nice are to see here. you again. Yeah, good to see you. We just came off stage. Absolutely, it was very good. That was interesting. Well done. Loud. Thank you. No, thank you. Well done. Um, there was a really loud bit of music in the background, but we got through it. Um, we managed to talk about Nostra Vostros and your announcement today. I think, as you pointed out, the music and the thumping was all about excitement around what we're doing next rapid. Absolutely. So, Brad Garlinghouse, CEO of Ripple, you had an announcement today. Do you want to remind us what it is? Yes, we are very excited. You know, we've seen a lot of it, continued investment in the XRP ecosystem, but we, Ripple, wanted to go beyond that even. And we're working with 17 universities around the world where we're funding $50 million contributing that to those universities to further the investment in blockchain, in crypto, 
yeah, this really is the workforce of the future. Mm -hmm. And I think there's so many different ways these technologies can be used to catalyze industries, to change the way global commerce is flowing. Mm -hmm. And I think using these technologies for that workplace workforce of the future could really change the future. And this is about addressing some of the perceived centralization as well a little bit. Like you would see them running uh, validators and things like that? Certainly some of the universities we're working with are gonna be running validators. Uh, it was important to us that th this was really a philanthropic effort. And it wasn't just a, hey, you know, we're gonna do X, Y, and Z and we want you to do these things. It was really stepping back. And it's one of the reasons why we didn't even require the, the research and some of the, the there's a Ripple a Ripple Fellowship launching at the University of Pennsylvania, you know, it's not even required that it's just focused on XRP. It's look, we want to understand blockchain technologies broadly. We want to further the research and further the usage of those broadly. So, you guys, uh, two core products, uh, XRapid and XCurrent. So XCurrent being the one that people probably know, it's the cross-border fiat to fiat, and XRapid is based on XRP, the digital asset, the natively digital asset. So uh, we separated those two on stage. I think we got through them. We talked about the business case for liquidity management and, and so on. Um, but you guys sold, was it $170 million of uh, XRP, uh, and you've kind of publicly disclosed all of that stuff um, in Q1, and that's now building the, the war chest. Do you see a time in which that flips into being revenue from you know, kind of providing XRapid and XCurrent more so than selling XRP? You know, we definitely continue to see both sides of the business grow quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, we, as we talked about on stage, we've signed up now more than 100 customers on XCurrent. We're seeing more customers sign up on XRapid. We've publicly disclosed, I think, six or seven of those. Uh, ultimately, when we think about success, it's how do we drive success of the XRP ecosystem broadly? Yeah. We are uh, one of many participants in that ecosystem. We are the most interested participants. You know, we own, as we talked about, 60% of all the XRP. One of the reasons why we're so proactive and transparent about what we do with XRP is because we want to be a steward of the industry. We want to make sure there's total transparency. And so we do, as you referenced, send out a quarterly report and put it out there to share exactly what we see happening in the ecosystem, what we've sold, what others are doing, what we see happening, because we want other, everyone to participate and benefit from that ecosystem. And so when you say everyone to participate and benefit, like pretty much anyone can buy the XRP if they were to go to a cryptocurrency exchange. So who do you think is buying the XRP? Well, I think uh, I can't know who's buying XRP on you know, Bitstamp or Kraken because it's, there. because it's their customers. Uh, you know, we certainly see more institutional interest. We Ripple, uh, you know, we sell a little bit of XRP ourselves directly. Uh, those are with institutional investors, institutional players. Uh, but, you know, one of the things I, I think is exciting to see change a little bit in the crypto industry broadly, and we talked about this on stage, is I, I feel like two years ago, you know, the use case for crypto was kind of all about Silk Road or Alpha Bay. And now you're seeing, you know, more and more people talk about, well, now crypto is all about the speculator. and. I think that's true, but I think it's also an evolution. So is crypto for the speculator, or is it really laterally actually for somebody else? Is it for the institutions, do you think, longer well, term? Or would you prefer to see it go there, maybe? Many industries are, you know, let's choose a commodity uh, like gold, let's choose a commodity like oil. You know, speculators are part of those ecosystems, and they're an important part because they're providing liquidity to those ecosystems. So many, many industries have speculators to participate. Ripple is focused on how do we focus on or how do we enable a institutional use case. Yeah. We aren't trying to, you know, uh, I, I actually was quoted publicly as saying I cringe when people talk about promoting a digital asset. Mm -hmm. Ripple never tries to promote XRP as a digital asset. We try to demonstrate its usefulness in product flows and solving a real problem. 
But you're in an organization, I think, where a lot of the founders have a lot of XRP. Uh, there's a lot of potential for conflict and that sort of thing. Your clients are the banks. How do you get them comfortable with the idea that like, you hold a lot of XRP and that, that XRP's price isn't going to be volatile, that uh, there's not going to be any compliance challenges coming down the road? How do you get them there? Well, the, the, the first thought, is, uh, in terms of the potential conflicts you described, that assumes that we actually could control the price of XRP, mm -hmm. which I would say we can't. Uh, if you were to dump a lot of it on a market, though. Yeah, we actually now, as I think you probably know, we have it tied up in escrow, yeah. and so we really we can't even do that. that. But uh, it's, it's important, I think, for any healthy market to not have a player controlling the market. And I've, I made a, a comment, not on stage, but uh, separately, Ripple, the company, had our best quarter ever in Q1. We signed up more than a bank a week to production contracts. And production contract means that they intend to switch on X current or X rapid. Real flows, well, X current or X rapid, yes, but real flows, real money, not experiments. And what's the balance there? Is it mostly X current still? Is that? It's still mostly X current, for sure. And I think you're starting to see, I mean, we just launched X rapid in the market, you know, Q3, Q4 last year. So. The point I wanted to make, though, is you know, in a, in a quarter where we had a record quarter and signed up more than a bank a week, the price of XRP went down 70%. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think that the idea that you know, these correlated. are... Yeah. You know, look, if the whole ecosystem is successful, I, I, you and I have talked about this informally before, but I think that the problem you see in the ICO market is so many of these tokens don't have usefulness. Mm -hmm. The long-term value of any digital asset will be derived by the the usefulness of that digital asset, by the utility it, it delivers. And, and there's a gap between when it's initially available and when it becomes useful, there's this period of time. Like, so if, do you feel that speculators have been burned and do you feel like there are sensible steps that the market as a whole should be taking to, to kind of? I mean, to have speculators been burned, I mean, massively. I mean, yeah. there have been outright frauds, right? You know, uh, we've all read about these things. And, you know, I, I also made the comment, you know, experiments, and blockchain or white papers are not a business model. Mm -hmm. And for those that are you know, focused on investing in those spaces, I would, I would offer a lot of caution. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I think Ripple has been successful in part because we've been very focused on let's solve one set of problems for one set of customers. And we've gone very deep there and our momentum there has, I think, served us well. It is. Um, Brad, thank you so much for being on Fintech Insider and Blockchain Insider with us. Um, I'm sure we'll bump into you soon. And uh, where can people find out more about you? Ripple.com. Thank you Check for being us with us. Check us out. Thank you. Good to see you. That was Brad Garlinghouse. Some interesting and insightful comments from the way Brad views the world and the way Ripple view the world there. Uh, thank you very much for Brad for being on the show. And from Brad to, well, another Brad. Uh, this is Brad from Dash. Great, we are here at Money 2020. Uh, Fintech Insider proudly brings to you its crossover with Blockchain Insider. I have Brad from Dash. Brad, how are you, sir? Very well, thank you. How are you, sir? I'm really good. Thanks for being on the podcast. Um, so before we get started, like, who's Brad? Like, who are you? So yeah, I'm, uh, I'm the global head of business development for Dash Core Group. I'm fairly new to, to Dash, actually. I just started in December of last year. I came from American Express. I had about, oh, about 17 and a half years with, with American Express. Uh, before leaving for Dash, um, and based out of Sydney, Australia. So I've been there. It always throws people with my accent because I'm American, but uh, been based out of Sydney for the last 14 years, oh, wow. uh, and so we continue to be based out of there as well. Interesting. So 
Then tell me about Dash and also tell me the journey from American Express to Dash because Dash being called one of the cryptocurrencies, yeah. like it, it's the kind of thing where there's still, I think, unfortunately, a lot of negativity around the subject. So, so what led you to go actually from American Express to Dash? This is a great move. Yeah, it's. I mean, I have not been into crypto maybe as long as some other people. I'm definitely not an OG back from '09 that yeah. sort of thing. It was more of probably really. Um, early last year that I really started uh, really getting into it a little bit more. Yeah, everybody kind of heard about, you know, of course, Bitcoin, but peeling back that onion, getting into that detail uh, really occurred last year. And that's when it, that kind of aha moment, you know, it was, okay, wait a minute. Are you telling me pretty much any third party is kind of not needed? Oh, okay. Now this is interesting. Let me understand this a little bit more. And it really felt like the very early days, the wild, wild west days of like the dot-com boom. Uh, you know, from, from not too long ago. So that type of excitement uh, really appealed to me. And I think also, too, it's not really an Amex thing, but any sort of big big corporation versus a smaller startup, you know, there's, a, there's a different journey, there's a different ride, and I found that more exciting. Completely. So separate Dash, the kind of crypto asset, the cryptocurrency, away from Dash, the company. Are those two different things? And how, what's the relationship between those two things? Uh, that's actually an important distinction. So Dash Core Group, Inc., I guess the, the full name, that's, that's who I'm employed by. Um, we are technically a, a vendor of the Dash network, uh, the Dash network managed by DAO, uh, which are our master node owners um, that are really the... Can I ask you to step through that? There was a lot of jargon. So yeah, yeah, yeah. managed by DAO, who are our masternode owners. Fair What's point. DAO? What's a masternode? No. Who's an owner of one of these things? I'll start with the masternode owner first, because I think this is where, yeah, Dash is a little bit different than other cryptos. Um, I think most people are familiar with uh, the concept of mining, the, the, the network. Exactly. Dash, just like any cryptocurrency, of course, has, has miners, and they're maintaining the network. But what we have is we've got another layer on top that we call the masternodes. Um, like miners, they're doing a, a service for the network, um, but where it's a little bit different is to be a masternode, you actually have to prove ownership of a thousand dash. Got it. Um, you're not staking it, it's just I'm proving ownership. And you've got, I can prove I have a thousand dash. And I got skin in the game, basically is what that means. Uh, with Dash right now, that's about you know a little over three hundred thousand U.S. dollars to be a master node owner. So there, it's a significant, I guess. That's investment. a big investment, right? It's absolutely right, and uh, got about forty-eight hundred of them roughly in the in the network. And what the master nodes are doing, besides you know helping maintain the network and providing services like our instant send, which is what allows that near Visa-like transaction speeds, they're also providing an important kind of governance uh, role to the network, and that's the DAO or the de uh, decentralized autonomous organization. So what happens is... So effectively, you've got 4,800 you know, sort of, uh, individuals or members or companies or whatever they are that have staked, well, not staked, but have put up and proven that they have uh, $300,000 worth of Dash, and then they get to what, vote on new features, and what else do they get to do? Absolutely. The, the way it ultimately works is the, the super block reward that comes through is split 45 and 45 percent between the miners and the masternodes. And block reward being new dashes created and you get rewarded for having mined that new dash. For having, exactly, having provided that service to the network, yeah. providing the, you know, that security, the instant send features, and exactly, you're, you're rewarded uh, those newly mined coins. That split, like I was saying, that 45 and 45 between the masternodes and the miners, that 10% delta goes to our monthly treasury. Uh, so we end up being actually, you know, like yourselves, completely self-funding. Uh, we never went through an ICO. We're not relying on donations or volunteers, uh, but rather, again, that monthly budget is generated 
uh, for us to then propel the network uh, forward. Um, that's done. And the master nodes have the ability to vote on whether or not you, the company, gets to keep getting that 10%. That's exact. Well, the 10% is for the network, and right. so where those funds go is ultimately uh, through proposals that literally anybody can put to the network. It costs five dash to avoid spam, but you and I could put up a, a proposal to the network, an actual company could. So this is a bit different to how Visa, MasterCard and Amex run, which yeah. are now in private limited companies that basically have their own roadmap agenda and clients, uh, or consortia, which you know, sort of have a messy human-based governance process. I guess this is a bit more of an obvious financial game theory type of process, but there's a very clear sort of, you can put this proposal forward, these people can vote on that proposal, and so long as the network keeps running, um, we, you, then everything's fine. That's exactly it. And, and what ends up happening is, um, well, what you see is a lot of the community, they're the ones that really know what's happening on the ground. Um, so a lot of times that type of detail isn't necessarily always visible if you're sitting in another country or things of that nature. And so as an example, uh, Venezuela is a country that we're, we're very much interested in. Um, and that's been driven uh, right now. There's been a lot of that community growth. They've been putting proposals to the network. That's They've interesting. Been successfully funded. So in a country where you have hyperinflation, where you don't have a strong governance structure, actually these things start to really take hold in, in a different way. That becomes an opportunity for you guys. And actually, if you think about it from a financial services perspective and a financial inclusion perspective, or even just you know kind of aid and all these sorts of things, if Dash has a clear governance model that I can see, how proposals are made, it's all in the open, I can see how they're voted on, it's all in the open, then I can probably build these networks of financial services, not only in countries with hyperinflation, but also in war zone areas where there's some limited internet connectivity, but there isn't the traditional financial services infrastructure like you get with branches and ATMs and so on. I mean, the, the interesting aspect is ultimately, if we take the, the kind of wealthy country lens off for a second, um, the national fiat in these areas are actually more volatile than crypto. Yeah, yeah. So where most people today will say, well, why would I spend crypto on you know, any sort of purchase? It's too volatile, dot, dot, you know, the 10,000 Bitcoin pizza guy yeah. example. And then it's like, well, wait a minute. Actually, if your national fiat was more volatile, crypto is the better solution. And that's why I- Just go to Zimbabwe and ask them how they feel about their local currency. Right, exactly. And another area that we're focusing on as well. Um, I think I see that as being where a lot of that kind of first mainstream use is really going to start uh, because they don't have any other alternative. So talk to me about Dash more broadly. What's the like elevator 30 second version of what is Dash? The Dash in really five seconds even is uh, we are an alternative form of payment. Uh, we are digital cash and we're focused on being really quick and really cheap. So there's a lot of concerns about the so-called privacy coins, mm -hmm. right? Um, that uh, there's the anonymity to a different degree with Dash than you would get with Bitcoin. It's not as obviously traceable and transparent. Uh, there's a lot of concern amongst policymakers and regulators that you would see uh, terrorist financing, laundering of money, uh, and, and such like uh, negative behavior, possibly even fraud, with these privacy coins. Is that the reality? And what can you do to prevent that? It's. It's a topic, I think you're right. It's JFSA in Japan, for example, is probably maybe leading that on the regulatory level, uh, those types of conversations. I think there's two, a couple of things at play here. I think the first is we've got to separate the use case. And, and, and the fact is, is that while privacy can be used, as you mentioned, like from that anonymity point of view with respect to transacting, 
It also has a very real world use case that we're already all familiar with, which is today on the blockchain, when you transact, your balance is visible uh, to, to the purdy with whom you're transacting. Um, that doesn't happen if I use my Visa card or Amex card at a Starbucks or if I'm paying cash or check or whatever, right? So in today's world, we don't display our balance uh, in that manner, but yet we do in blockchain. Now, for us sitting here in Amsterdam right now today, that's probably not a security risk. You are now suddenly in Venezuela or some of these other countries, and now people know you've got $1,000 on your phone in your pocket. That's a security major risk. security well, risk. Well, actually, but there's maybe somebody walking around that has a net worth that's really high, um, even in a conference like this, and that they be would become a target. Absolutely right. So I think that's one part of the story that I haven't really seen uh, be articulated yet, and I think that has to be driven to the front, first of all. There is real use. And, and given the focus on general data protection, regulation, and privacy more broadly, uh, the, there's a lot of push for privacy, I think, generally. The management of your own data and how you display that. So I think that that's one element. How do we change that story? There is real use cases uh, for privacy. You know, I think the other side is specific to, to Dash. Features called Private Send for us. Um, it's about one-ish percent of our transactions. So our, our users are already kind of telling us that it's not a, a huge feature. But the reality is, is the technology that we use on our Private Send, uh, CoinJoin, you can do on the Bitcoin network. You can do the exact same transaction on the Bitcoin network. The difference is that within Dash, it's made a lot easier. It's a toggle switch, you switch over, and therefore it's a private send. So if the regulator, we need to, I guess, dissect the argument of the regulator to be able to say, is the issue the fact that this type of transaction can exist, or is the issue the fact that Dash has got an, an, an easy enablement feature? Because if it's an issue with the transaction, then it's not a Dash issue. That's, that's a much broader issue. And talk to me about like, some of the transaction forensics tools that are out there. Because I know the, the channel analysis, the elliptics, and so on, are now starting to get their head around Dash and Monero and others. Like, where do you stand on those from a law enforcement standpoint? Is that something that you're actively cooperating with and happy to have conversations and engage with? Yeah, I mean, look, I think in general, so the short answer is yes. We, one of our uh, strong partnerships is with a company called BlockCypher. Uh, they're working with also a company called Blockchain Intel around that kind of real-time you know, risk analytics, data visualization, and that sort of thing. Uh, the reality is, is with regulators today, uh, especially when you're dealing with fiat on and off ramps, that type of compliance becomes a lot more important. Yes. From Dash's perspective, we don't have the, that ability to do the forensics, but we do have those partners. So if we've got, a, say, an ATM partner that uh, we really want to work with, there's a lot of great synergies, et cetera, but they need a compliance solution to enable Dash. You go here to so a couple of partners. We do, we do the matchmaking service uh, and get them talking. And possibly the exchanges and the wallets and so on as well, and really really helping them. It's those on-off ramps, like you say, and, and helping them engage with their, their regulated partners and law enforcement. Well, this is Brad. Uh, that was a great conversation. Uh, where can people find out more about Dash? Uh, easiest place, just uh, www.dash.org. It's uh, right on our website. Thank you very much. Hey, cheers, mate. Thank you. Appreciate it. And that was Brad from Dash. Thank you very much to all our guests this week, Seraphine and Jeff Tyson, and, of course, the wonderful Brad, Brad Garlinghouse and Brad from Dash. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard, please remember to subscribe to our podcast. Check us out and tell all your friends too. If you want to learn more about the people that bring you this podcast, we are 11FS. You can find us at 11FS.com. Uh, that's all for now. Until next week.